Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 226, The Great Weather. Just in case you don't know, a weather is a ram, often referring to a castrated ram in fact. Thomas More used the phrase as a description for Woolsey, I'm assuming as a disparaging term reflecting Woolsey as the source of the various goodies and patronage and bribery that came from his hands, or indeed hooves. Weather doesn't in this case refer to that commodity of which England has too much. Sorry if you already knew all that, I had to look it up, you see. Just to remind you then that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you want to see the smorgasbord of delights, just hop along to the agorapodcastnetwork.com and have a look around at all the podcasts there. Now last week we ended on a rather dark warning note for poor old Woolsey. While it's true that the divorce was now critical for his survival, he did have another great strength, and that was that I think the king genuinely loved him, and deep in his soul still felt some deference to the man who'd served him for so long. And even right at the end, Henry really didn't want to see Wolsey go. It's really quite cute in a slightly gross kind of way. But unfortunately, the wicket on which Wolsey was playing was as sticky as a sticky bun eaten by a sticky the stick insect, and as time went by, it became increasingly obvious that Wolsey would not succeed in delivering the divorce. Pope Clement squiggled and squirmed and ducked and weaved like Del Boy in the Peckham market, and there was never a jelly so difficult to nail to a wall. So despite the enormous diplomatic pressure the English brought to bear, the cause was on the road to nowhere and no one was coming on board. 
But then, into the lists, rode one Dr Stephen Gardiner. Stephen Gardiner will be a player in our story for quite a long while, so let's introduce the lad. It's not very clear when he was born, somewhere between 1495 and 1498, so he's in his early 30s, probably when he joins our tale. He joins that growing body of characters who come from merchant stock. His father was a clothmaker in Suffolk. Gardiner was then a Cambridge academic, who in 1523 came to the notice of Cardinal Wolsey and was lucky enough to enter his service. Now, becoming part of the Cardinal's service was a good thing, capital G, capital T, for talented young men who were keen to make a bob for themselves and a name as well. And Gardiner was indeed a talented young man, keen to make a bob or three and a name for himself, and a stream of ecclesiastical preferment came his way from the great weather. So useful was Gardiner that by 1527 he'd even come to the notice of the king himself, and Henry asked Wolsey to release Gardiner so that he could come on to Henry's staff. Wolsey managed to hold on to him for a while, but would not do so forever. Gardiner is one of those characters who have generated strong feelings, and strong feelings along rather predictable confessional lines. He was without doubt a brilliant theologian and writer on a European scale, second only to John Fisher in his reputation, and he would become in time the Bishop of Winchester. In his early years, he's going to be pulled this way and that by a belief in obedience to the king on the one hand and a firm traditionalism in religion on the other. So as Henry travels, he finds things harder and harder. Now this is unfortunate for anybody who wanted to have a faultless reputation for consistency. Gardner is no John Fisher, who tied himself to the traditional mast, fought tirelessly for Catherine, and went to the block as a result. No, Gardner was a politician as well as an academic. In his time, he will try to bring down Thomas Cromwell, he will try to destroy Thomas Cranmer, the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Gardner was a player, and that meant keeping the king's favour and the king's ear. But towards the end of Henry's reign, he was clearly a traditionalist, and indeed the leader of the traditionalists, and he sought to bring England back to Rome under Mary. To history, then, your view of Gardner may depend on your faith. To John Fox, the Protestant martyrologist, he was, quote, a man hated of God and all good men which I think you could safely describe as less than positive. Fox called him Wiley Winchester. The Elizabethan humanist Gabriel Harvey was a bit more nuanced. On the one hand, Gardiner was a crafty, deceitful fox, as opposed to the plain-speaking kind of fox, obviously. And on the other hand, he couldn't help praising Gardiner for his singular perfection, experience and cunning practice in the affairs of the world. And as a man reputedly singularly wise, politic and learned, especially in law and matters of state. Gardner was an irascible and arrogant man who, as the 20th century historian G.R. Elton wrote, always made enemies more readily than friends. He was brilliant, clever, energetic, effective. He had an eye to the main chance and was always looking for preferment. Not a man to be ignored, essentially, and he'll outlive much more famous men such as Wolsey and Cromwell. So, Gardner was sent to Rome twice to rescue the king's increasingly beleaguered and desperate cause. Wolsey's plan now was to get the king's case tried in England, to 
get it judged here, where it could be controlled and influenced better. And in May 1528, Gardiner was kneeling before the king at Greenwich Palace, freshly returned from Rome, and he bore a piece of paper. It was a papal commission, whereby a papal legate called Cardinal Campeggio, traditionally a man very sympathetic to England and her cause, would come to our green and pleasant land, hear the case with another legate, let's say mm, Cardinal Wolsey maybe, and make her judgment. Henry was jumping for joy. He called in Anne to hear the news, who shared in his joy, though jumping or otherwise is not recorded. Maybe slightly more decorous hop, or possibly a little skip. But then the following day, Wolsey poured the coldest of waters on the paper. And actually, before he'd left Rome, Gardiner had also told the Pope that the piece of paper was most notable for its suckiness, because it was the wrong kind of commission. It was what they called a general commission, which would uncover stuff and information, but then be referred back to Rome again for judgment. It was as useless, it would seem, as a chocolate teapot. Darn. So, boot in the backside, back to Rome went Gardiner for the second time. What they needed was something called a decretial commission, which gave the court the power to make the decision itself in England. In Gardiner's ears were Henry's words, In case Carpeggio never comes, you are never to return. I think you'll agree this falls more into the style of management known as stick rather than that known as carrot. Back in England, the sweating sickness had arrived in town, and Henry bravely fled to the countryside with a few companions. One of the victims of the sickness was Anne herself, at home at Hever Castle in Kent, and poor Henry was distraught, prompting more of his famous love letters, which included the rather double-edged advice not to come back too soon until she was absolutely sure she was well. How romantic. No sign of any brow mopping going on, that's for sure. By the way, you can read all of the love letters on the really rather remarkable website called theannebelinfiles.com. I'm building a little index to help you navigate to the right bits as you go if you want to, so you can start with the familiar comfort blanket known as thehistoryofengland.co.uk if you like. By October 1528, the papal legate and gardener were back in London. And wonder of wonders, gardener had done his work. Campeggio held a decretal commission in his little paws. Superb! Henry was once again on top of the world looking down on creation. Wolsey was his best ever pal once more. Campaggio went to meet with Catherine. Catherine made it absolutely clear once more that she had not had sexual relations with that man. Campeggio could see for himself just how pious Catherine was, hearing Mass several times a day, turning increasingly to her religion as her consolation, and he could see what a good daughter of the church she was. And she told him of her love and obedience to her husband, that she'd always been the best of wives, and was absolutely determined to continue to be the best of wives. At this point, Catherine, obediently and lovingly of course, mentioned that she'd been talking with her legal advisers. It should be noted that she'd been given a full team of advisers from around Europe, not just England. At this point, also lovingly and obediently of course, she produced a small tactical nuclear device. The loving and obedient small tactical nuclear device was a secret brief, which had been issued back in the day, which updated Pope Julius's original bull. It removed some legal imperfections in the original bull. These imperfections 
were those on which a large part of Henry's case depended. It was completely unexpected. It cut Henry's case off at the knees. Thank you, dear wife. Not. Catherine then, lovingly and obediently, of course, proceeded to make sure that Charles V, the Pope, Uncle Tom Cobbley, as well as all, were absolutely fully aware of it. Sweet. The guest room was all decked out for Mr Cockup. The knives were prepared for Mr Woolsey. But Cardinal Campeggio tried an interesting new tack at this point. Trading on his role as confessor and legate, he suggested to Catherine that she retire to a nunnery. Now, here was an idea. Catherine's piety was legendary. Going to a nunnery was nothing like going to a nunnery as today. The grander ladies could have an enormous entourage and all the comforts of home should they so desire. A perfectly acceptable canonical view held that hubby could then remarry. All could be resolved with no besmirching of anybody's honour. Plus, the rights of her beloved child Mary would be preserved. Mary would have had to go through none of the nightmarish humiliations to which she was later subjected. It was a nice try. It seemed a perfect solution for everyone. Breaths were held while Catherine took her time to deliberate. It could all be over here and now. But Catherine's answer was no. Catherine was wife and queen, and wife and queen she would remain, whatever the cost. Campeggio and Wolsey delayed and delayed the court, desperate to find a solution before the court played out in public. But this was now already a very public theatre, and really there was no doubt who was winning the popular vote. If this had been Big Brother, Wolsey and Anne would have been voted out of that house so fast their feet wouldn't have touched the floor. Catherine was still officially queen, still officially at the king's side. On one such occasion, as they passed together through the public gallery at Bridewell Palace, such a large crowd gathered that Henry banned any people from gathering outside his palaces ever again. Much of the antagonism the people expressed didn't actually touch Henry. It was Anne. It was Anne who was the evil mistress, dragging the king away from his rightful queen and distracting the poor lamb Henry from his rightful duty. But worse, that very same attitude was clearly shared by many of Henry's leading nobility, however dutiful they might be in helping their rightful lord achieve his stated aims. In illustration, we have an absolutely delightful event. Henry was not a blithering idiot, whatever else he was. He could see there was a problem. He could see he needed to keep his lads at his side. So, Henry called together his lords and notables to Bridewell Palace to convince them all he was being a good boy. And with not a twitch, not a crossed finger, not a blush, he solemnly informed them that nothing, but nothing, could make him happier than that Compeggio found that his marriage to Catherine had been lawful. If he could choose a wife right now, it would be Catherine. Isn't she great? Wow! But look, folks, if it's God's will they be separated then that's just the way it must be. We can't argue with the word of God now, can we, lads? Feel for me, gentle lords. Feel my pain. I mean, good lord, what an outrageous fibber. I imagine the only noise in the room was the thunder of clacking as noble jaws hit noble knees. Meanwhile, Wolsey poured the pressure on the Pope once more. If this court doesn't go the right way, he wrote, the result would be catastrophe. It would be nothing less than the ruin of the church 
the destruction of papal authority. I close my eyes before such horror. I throw myself at the Holy Father's feet. I beg him to look on his royal majesty's holy and unchangeable desire, his most just, most holy, most upright desire. Clement could not claim he'd not been warned. Early in 1529, a new delegation reached Rome, led by Francis Bryan. Bryan was much more straightforward with Henry than other advisers. Unlike Wolsey's careful and positive messages to Henry in London, Bryan's reports back on Henry's chances of success were blunt and entirely negative. Furthermore, he didn't pull his punches about where blame lay. If my writings sound anything against the cardinal, or other, who feels himself aggrieved, let him kick. For I do it not of malice, but according to my duty to inform your grace. Wolsey tottered on his throne. Now, Brian was an Anne supporter. We know that his dispatches home included a letter for her as well, but we don't know what it said. Now, a lesser man might have broken before all of this, but opposition just enraged Henry further. And in December 1528, Anne was installed in rooms at Bridewell Palace. It's the start of a bizarre ménage à toi, can you believe it? Until 1531, Catherine was still officially presiding at court as queen. She still played her part in the Christmas celebrations, though clearly not enjoying herself according to the French ambassador. Anne, meanwhile, refused to attend the Christmas court, provoking a series of worried presents from her lover, but quite probably Anne was not intimidated, simply determined to keep a relatively low profile until Campaggio and the court had pronounced. That legatine court finally convened in May 1529. Catherine's council included Bishop John Fisher and William Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, so she was far from friendless. Catherine had taken the best legal advice and played that event absolutely flawlessly. First of all, she completely denied the authority of the court and declared, I be no Englishwoman but a Spaniard born, which clarified for anybody still in doubt where Catherine's loyalties lay. Next, she formally appealed to Rome. This was another disaster for Henry. Now he would have to go through the humiliation of an appeal being tried in Rome, whatever this court decided. But the pièce de résistance was when, in defiance of protocol, Catherine pushed her way through the court and came to kneel in front of her husband, the king. Desperately, Henry tried and tried to make her rise, but she was having none of that. This was her obedient and loving moment. Sir... I beseech you for all the love that hath been between us, and for the love of God, let me have justice. Take of me some pity and compassion, for I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. Alas, sir, wherein have I offended you? Or what occasion of displeasure have I deserved? I have been to you a true, humble and obedient wife, ever comfortable to your will. I loved all those whom ye loved only for your sake, whether I had cause or no, and whether they were my friends or enemies. This twenty years or more I have been your true wife, and by me ye have had divers children, although it hath pleased God to call them out of this world, with hath been no fault of me. When ye have had me at first, I take God to my judge I was a true maid, without touch of man." And so it went on, an absolute PR triumph. And of course largely true, which is even better. 
Once finished, despite the calls for her to return to the court, she swept out, never to return, into the arms of her cheering ladies-in-waiting, leaving John Fisher to fight very ably her cause. Way to go. Burn. Game set and match. They think it's all over. It is now. The court laboured on. Eventually, in July 1529, Campeggio calmly said that it was now summer, and in Rome, no one has a court in summer. So, he was off back home now, and the case would be reviewed in Rome, thank you very much. Ooh, alongside Catherine's appeal. And like the tiger who came to tea, he went. Wolsey and Henry might have been most amused and diverted to know that Campeggio anyway had instructions from his Pope, right from the start, to burn the decretial commission and under no circumstances allow a decision to be made by the court. All that Wolsey had achieved was to give Catherine the best possible stage for her bravura performance. There was more. In June 1529, in northern Italy, the French army was torn to shreds by the imperial tertio. The ambitions of Francis I and the French in northern Italy were finally at an end and there was no longer any military pressure on the Pope to bring the English any relief and cut a deal. By August, the Treaty of Cambrai had sealed France's defeat. This was the end for Wolsey. Now, the circumstances of his fall are much debated. At debate is whether he fell simply because he'd failed the king or because he was a victim of political infighting. The lovers of a faction theory have it that the Aragonese and Berlin faction now had something in common. They wanted Wolsey gone. Critically, they also had the support of the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk because to these two gentlemen, ruling was their job. Not some jumped-up butcher's cur, he should never have been around anyway, they'd always detested him, he was an oik. Let me add something here. At some point over the next few weeks, you'll all have the chance to give your opinions about Anne if you so desire, and I hope you will give freely. And whether or not you are an Anne enthusiast, one of the ways she's been presented is as unscrupulous and power-hungry. Well, look, Suffolk, as you all know, owed a lot to Wolsey. He owed a lot because Wolsey helped him win round the king when Suffolk had married Mary, the king's sister, without permission. And this here was Wolsey's reward for that help to be stabbed in the back by Suffolk. With friends like that and all. My point is that this is how the game is played. It's not just part of my horror that people as thoroughly unpleasant as Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, could be allowed to thrive. Anyway, in this attack on Wolsey, Anne may or may not have played a leading part, depending to a degree on how much you believe George Cavendish's version According to his version of events, Anne's public instructions to Wolsey became preemptory and borderline rude, where once they'd been ingratiating. That she worked actively to poison the king's mind against Wolsey. During the summer progress of 1529, Anne was now publicly at the king's side, and Wolsey, as normal, was not. Here again is a weakness of his position. Wolsey was a functionary, His place was not to be always at the king's side while the king was playing. That was what the nobility did. Wolsey's role was to be back at home, functioning away. So this was critical because everyone knew that once Wolsey and Henry got together, Wolsey knew how to work the king around. And so they had to be kept apart. And so, on that summer progress of 1529, 
at the Palace of Grafton, a famous incident was supposed to have taken place, where Wolsey was indeed separated from the king by a ruse perpetrated by Anne, taking the king off hunting for the day when he was supposed to be meeting Wolsey. Wolsey was never to meet the king face to face again. It's a fascinating occasion, a shining example of how courtiers scrabbled over each other to gain the ear of the king and deny it to others. The story shows Anne as a player, just like any other at the court, in all its hideousness, but let's not be kidded. This is normal hideousnesses. This is the way it works, as we've just said. Now, for those members of the History of England, you'll be delighted to know that I've done a brief Shedcast Extra of the event, so you can hear what went on and what was said. And for all of you, I've written an article on the History of England website about it, which also contains Cavendish's original text. Have a look, it's a hoot, really, especially Anne's trash talk. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The whole thing at Grafton, though, may just be a story. Others are less convinced that the incident took place at all and think that it simply served Cavendish's literary purposes, as I've said. Others reject the view that Anne had been in coots with Norfolk to plot Wolsey's downfall. No doubt Norfolk wanted him gone, but Anne? Really? They point to that plentiful, warm correspondence between Anne and Wolsey, where to all appearances, they're working to the same ends. They point out that it's difficult to see why Anne would want to bring down the most skilful person available, with far more knowledge than anyone else about how to procure a divorce at the Papal Curia. And indeed, Wolsey was very clearly not working against Anne's interests. Wolsey was, above all, the king's servant, there to do what the king wanted him to do. A lot also depends on your view of the level of Henry's involvement. Did he drive the bus, or was he manipulated by leading members of the king's council? If you deny or minimise the importance of faction, if that's where you come from, you point out that the physical evidence shows that all the strategy emanates from the king. And you minimise how far Henry's thoughts had been previously influenced by others. You make the point that Henry had plenty of reasons to get rid of Wolsey all on his own. The most obvious is that the outcome of the legatine court has been disastrous. It could hardly have been worse. In the incident of the appointment of a new abbess of Wilton in 1528, there is also evidence of growing irritation on Henry's part with Wolsey's level of control, and evidence of his determination to make sure it went so far and no further, and that the king was always in control. So, what happened was that probably by mistake, Wolsey made the appointment of the new abbess of Wilton before he'd squared it with the king, and he tried to gloss it, tried to get away with it. He was carpeted as a result, is what Henry wrote. Ah, my lord, it is a double offence both to do ill and to colour it too. But with men that hath wit, it cannot be accepted so. Wherefore, my good lord, use no more that way with me, for there is no man living that hateth it more. As we've seen, Henry was also getting further evidence of Wolsey's failure. 
the incident of Francis Bryan's report in March 1529 from Rome again. Bryan wrote that Wolsey had marvellous intelligence with the Pope and in Rome and also with Cardinal Campeggio. Wherefore, seeing that he hath such intelligence with them, which hath not minded to advance your matter, Francis thinketh it shall be the more need for your grace to have better regard to said affair. Brian saying, look to yourself, take direct control over this, because Wolsey's not really doing what he should be doing. He also added that whoever had told Henry that they had a good chance with the divorce had not served Henry's interests well. Now, you could read this incident two ways. You could say that Henry here had direct evidence from his plain-speaking courtier, Brian, and that it's not surprising he was then to take action to remove Wolsey. Or you might triumphantly note that Francis Brian was a cousin of Anne Boleyn, and that here, therefore, is evidence of a Boleyn faction at work, working to manipulate Henry and bring the cardinal down. Whether you choose to believe that the responsibility for Wolsey's fall lay with political infighting, with or without Anne, or just that the king decided that Wolsey had now outlived his usefulness, what we do know is that on the 9th of October, Wolsey was indeed stripped of his orifice. On the 9th of October, when Wolsey set out on his procession to Westminster Hall, the normal swarm of courtiers that usually surrounded him were nowhere to be seen. That, for me, is the most striking moment of his fall. The jackals had gone to Henry's court because they knew Wolsey no longer had the power to enrich them. Later that very same day, Wolsey was accused of primunere, a ridiculous charge. Primunere accused the recipient of furthering the interests of a foreign power, in this case, the Pope. Well, Wolsey was indeed a cardinal reporting to the Pope, but that was no secret, and indeed Henry had encouraged it. But Wolsey was forced to resign as Chancellor and was told to leave court. Within days, Henry and Anne were at Wolsey's magnificent palace of York Place, and a faint trail of dribble recorded their progress as they gloated over the magnificent palace on which Wolsey had lavished his riches and was now to be theirs. Here, Anne Boleyn would be installed, and yet more money be spent on changes she demanded, for example, buying up adjacent properties to make her a nice garden. This palace, York Place, would become known as Whitehall Palace, and there would be no place in it for Queen Catherine. At this point, Wolsey rather crumbles. He cannot take his punishment lying down. He keeps trying to write to the king to get reinstated. He even wrote at one stage to Anne, asking for her to help. She says, hmm, hang on, let me think. Um, well, oh, no. Though actually it's worth noting that she's in no way brutal. She writes kind words to him. But nor is she prepared to help him out of a hole that Wolsey wrote to Anne is again interesting. Does it indicate that he would have expected help from her and actually got on perfectly well with her, or just that he was absolutely desperate and would try anything? Over the next few months, Wolsey peppered his good servant Thomas Cromwell with increasingly whiny letters. Cromwell's worked hard for his old master, but there were limits even for a man of his ability. In his despair, Wolsey even bit the hand that fed him, accusing Cromwell of not working hard enough for him. A most unfair accusation. Cromwell's loyalty to his fallen master reflects entirely to his credit. Eventually, Wolsey commits what was effectively treason. 
suggesting secretly to the Pope that maybe a ruling from him ordering Henry to separate from Anne might do the trick to bring him back in line. When knowledge of this arrived in October 1530, Henry was understandably miffed and he called Wolsey down to London to answer charges. But on the way south, Wolsey died alongside Richard III at Leicester Abbey on the 29th of November 1530, famously saying at the last, If I had served God as diligently as I had done the king, he would not have given me over in my grey hairs. The new Chancellor was Thomas More, who wasted no time in celebrating the downfall of the great weather. Famously, More cut a deal with Henry to keep him out of the matter of the divorce in return for More's silence on it, a promise both parties were to break, not just Henry as is commonly said. More was no doubt to be an effective Chancellor in legal matters, though in fact following the path set by his master Wolsey in most respects. He was also to prove an enthusiastic pursuer of heretics, with at least three burnt on his watch. But I feel that I have somewhat let Wolsey down. We have taken little time to look at his achievements outside the purely political life at Henry's side. I don't have much time for that, but it's worth saying that Wolsey made significant advances in the operation of the law, which I think we have covered actually, with a genuine desire to make justice available to and effective for all. He pursued the nobility with charges of livery and maintenance and his actions are probably a good deal more effective than Henry VII's in removing noble excess, although Henry VII usually gets the credit. Wolsey made some effort to reform the church, though he didn't get far, it has to be said, and in foreign affairs he pursued peace as far as was consistent with his master's wishes. All in all, Despite his undoubted greed and avarice, his vanity and pomposity, Wolsey was as good and loyal a servant as King ever had. One last thing. Right to the end, I think Henry wanted to spare Wolsey, and that was most unusual for our Henry. If Wolsey had stayed quietly in York, I suspect strongly he would have ended his life as an Archbishop of York in his bed. In this, I think he's pretty rare and maybe evidence that Henry, even at the end, had to be pushed to remove Wolsey. Norfolk, Wiltshire and Suffolk therefore found themselves propelled to power. Yay! Now, presumably, they could implement their carefully thought-through policy to put the ing back into England. Trouble is, of course, Norfolk and Suffolk's objective in bringing Wolsey down was, mm, to bring Wolsey down. That was it. Not for them the selfless devotion to the service of the king's wishes and tireless hard work. These were limited men. Thomas Howard, 3rd Duke of Norfolk, was described as small and spare in person and his hair black. He was ruthless and ambitious, hiding his greed for power under an affable, hail-fellow-well-met exterior, which helped him to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. This is a man not to be trusted, not to be relied on. Chapuis would record his view that Norfolk would do anything to cling to power. He's no better than Suffolk, which is a reasonably damning insult. One of the things I hadn't realised before I started researching these podcasts is that he had a rather more colourful private life than you might think, though entirely in character, I have to say. So, in 1527, Norfolk had taken a shine to one Bess Holland, a lady in Anne Boleyn's entourage, and before long he'd installed Bess in the family home, which was clearly slightly awkward, and surprisingly something to which his wife Elizabeth objected. Good Lord, really? 
Elizabeth also claimed maltreatment at the Duke's hands and by the 1530s, Norfolk and his wife were formally separated. It's a measure of the man, I think, that when he came to be tried for treason in 1547, both his wife and his mistress gave evidence against him. That must have hurt. All you can really say for Norfolk is that he was a survivor. It's immediately obvious that Henry is now being served by inferior men. Not that they would necessarily see it that way, but Henry did. He looked at his counsel straight in the face and he said so, that he wished he had Wolsey back. Meanwhile, Wiltshire, Thomas Blynn of course, Anne's dad, was terribly keen to make sure everyone knew that though they might think Norfolk and Suffolk were in control, the truth was very differently. Actually, it was him or his daughter Anne. There's one very revealing event when the French ambassador was forced by Wiltshire to specifically acknowledge his importance. And that of Anne. Essentially, Wiltshire let the ambassador, a man called Du Bellay, think he'd won approval for a proposal because Du Bellay had squared it with Norfolk and Suffolk. And then Wiltshire blocked it. Du Bellay said that he knew that Wiltshire did this to make me accept that all the rest have no influence except what it pleases the lady to allow them. Over the next three years, we see much more of Henry, since Wolsey is no longer there and Cromwell has not yet assumed his later preeminence. How much influence Anne wields over his decision-making and strategy is moot. For all the same reasons we came earlier, it's difficult to evaluate. She's not the person actually signing the documents, giving the orders. So, Dubelet's quote above might make it seem obvious that Anne was right there with and behind the king, what it pleases the lady to allow them, he'd said. But for the vast majority of materials and evidence, she is entirely absent. This is a standout example. And in fact, later in July 1532, the very same man Du Bellay would say, all that the lady does is by the king's order. That's a very different point of view. What I'm saying here is that it is by no means a gimme that Anne was the political animal many cut her out to be. Now, if you're one of those who knows what happens next, rather than one of those I keep hitting with plot spoilers, you might think there is a straight line between the failure of the legatine court and the attack on the English church and the declaration of royal supremacy, along with all the Pope out placards. But while it's clear there is a relationship, of course, between the two, there are two strands to Henry's thinking at this point. One was, of course, his utter determination to get his divorce from Catherine and use whatever means necessary to do so. And in this context, you can see a lot of what follows simply as an attempt to put pressure on Clement to give him what he wanted. One historian notes that there are many church reforms started in this period that just run into the sand, almost as though they were only there to threaten Clement. They weren't actually intended to make the reforms. And it is interesting that it takes Henry so long to move against the Pope, after almost seven long years of struggle to make Anne his queen. It does suggest that actually Henry's attachment to the papacy ran very deep, as deep as his Assertio Septum Sacramentorum might suggest. He really, really, really wanted papal approval. The other strand, though, was a mounting feeling and an increasing indignation in Henry's breast that all this fuss should ever have happened, that actually 
the Pope should not be in this position of power over him anyway. Spiritual leader, sure. But holding this level of power over a prince was to Henry becoming unacceptable. The divorce pushes him on. But the seeds were there in the Hun affair we mentioned a while back. Back in 1515, Henry had no thought whatsoever of throwing the Pope out of England. But he did have a very high view of royal religious authority. It is that which is catalyzed by the divorce. Just to illustrate the point, in 1529, Henry said to Chapuis that Luther was absolutely right to attack the vices and corruptions of the church, though he stopped well short of supporting Luther's attack on the sacraments. This is radical stuff that absolutely horrified Chapuis. Henry then went on to add that the need for reform in the church was absolutely clear and that it was the duty of the emperor to promote that reform and that the only power which the clergy had over laymen was absolution from sin. There are three elements here. The church needs to be reformed, that whatever title he might be carrying around, Henry considered himself to be an emperor and that it was his job, not the Pope's, to reform the church in his country. So let me spend a moment on one of these. Why, I hear you say, is the emperor thing significant, except it sounds suitably grand? It's significant because going back to Roman days, the emperor was recognised to have a spiritual authority as well as temporal. If you think of the Byzantines and all their disputes over the nature of God, there was the emperor sitting in judgment and making the decisions. Whatever Henry might say, and he would say a lot later, no king of England had previously claimed anything like such authority, and that is what Henry is moving towards. So the question is, where did he get all these ideas from? Well, as we've seen, you can go all the way back to the Hun affair to show that Henry had always had a very exalted view of royal authority. But there were more recent support for his views. One of these was a work published by a man called William Tyndale. Tyndale was an evangelical and determined to produce an English Bible. By 1524, he'd realised this couldn't be done in England and had moved abroad and engaged not only in translations, but in producing evangelical texts for a reform of the church. In 1528, he'd written his most influential book called The Obedience of a Christian Man. The book asserted two key principles of the English evangelicals, the supreme authority of scripture in the church and the supreme authority of the king in the state. The obedience of a Christian man was widely read and immediately banned. And it appears in records of interrogations of humble people. The point about that is that Tyndale's book gets read across a lot of different social classes. Tyndale's biggest achievement, of course, was his English Bible, but we'll deal with that elsewhere at another time. Anyway, the obedience of a Christian man found its way into Henry's hands. And according to John Fox, the martyrologist, it found its way into Henry's hands through Anne Boleyn. Now, she didn't just leave it lying around. She marked up some pages, and having read it, Henry is supposed to have remarked, This is a book for me and all kings to read. A second publication was the supplication for the beggars, Simon Fish's outburst of fury against the church. True traditions exist as to how the supplication for the beggars found its way into Henry's hand. One is that it was delivered by two merchants, and the other, by guess who, Anne Boleyn. Before we launch into the Reformation Parliament and all that entails, we should introduce yet another character, though this is one we have mentioned before a couple of times. 
because while Henry was contemplating his authority and that of the Pope, a new strategy emerged about how the king might move forward the question of the divorce. Stephen Gardiner was travelling in the company of the king on the summer progress when he lodged with a Cambridge colleague at the house of a family called the Cresses. There they happened to find another Cambridge man staying, a man called Thomas Cranmer, who earned a few quid by tutoring the Cresses' sons. So they all sat down for supper and talk turned to the king's divorce, as it does. Once Gardner had explained the situation, Cranmer had an opinion. Ah, well, he said. The king's going about it all wrong with all that legal stuff. I mean, there are so many wrinkles in canon law, you've no idea where the truth lies. Nope. You want to fight this one on moral grounds. That's black and white, that is. So, put the case on the theology in front of the universities. They'll tell you what's what. Now, Gardner thought this a splendid idea. And before you could ask if a table really is a table when it's not being used as a table, Cranmer was in front of the king and Henry was excited as anyone. From there, Cranmer moved into the Berlin camp. Thomas Berlin put him up at Durham House on the Strand, which was his pad, and by and by, Cranmer became a Berlin client, or so it is claimed. From there on, teams of the king's men, including both Gardiner and Cranmer, put the case together and then worked their way round the European universities. In 1531, the results were published. Essentially, through a protracted process of genuine inquiry and bribery, eight universities declared for Henry. It was a success of sorts. It did very little to persuade the Pope, of course. But during the process, Henry did acquire himself a future candidate for the position of the Archbishop of Canterbury when William Warham died and indeed acquired the future iconic reformer under Henry's son, who would do as much as anyone to establish Anglicanism. Thomas Cranmer is an odd sort of a hero, who can be characterised as a craven social climber, or a reasonable man unusually able to see both sides of an argument, a believer in royal supremacy, who through the glory of his talent for English prose, created a prayer book that helped define Anglicanism for 400 years and whose death provided an inspiration for English Protestants in their darkest days. But at this stage, he began to work not only on the technical case for Henry's divorce, but also as part of a team to produce the collectanaire. But also as part of a team to produce something called the collectanaire. The collectanaire was another body of work designed to show that English kings had always had power over the church in England. On his tours round Europe, interestingly, in 1532, he would also get married, which of course was a pretty straightforward way of indicating his rejection of the church requirement of clerical celibacy, and that he was therefore an evangelical. Franmer was basically a rather timid, scholarly man with few political skills, who would have preferred not to have been thrust into the limelight. But he had an advantage. Recognising his basic lack of political ambition, Henry rather liked him. Thomas Cromwell remarked to Cranmer once, You were born in a happy hour, for do and say what you will, the king will always take it at your hand. So, welcome gentle listeners to Thomas Cranmer. Back then to Henry's developing thoughts about the role of the Pope and the cries against the church. In 1529, Henry called a parliament under the public banner of dealing with the king's great matter. In fact, it's a little tricky to know exactly why he did call the Parliament in 1529. 
We've been used to there being a specific reason, often connected with the king's wanting the wherewithal to beat up some foreign potentate, which has the benefit, at least, of being straightforward. So the best guess as to why he called the parliament is that Henry's intention was to climb on his political surfboard and ride the wave of anti-clericalism all the way to divorce with Catherine by progressively piling more and more pressure onto the Pope. This parliament, which convened in November 1529, would run and run and not be completed until 1536. It would transform England forever. It would also transform England's constitution in a way that was probably not at all intended by anybody at all at the time. And it would therefore cause a bit of a shock when somebody noticed that, hey, hang on, George, have you noticed that Parliament seems to be the ultimate authority for, well, pretty much everything now? Golly, who'd have thought it? That, though, we'll have to wait for next week, and jolly exciting it will be to boot. Don't forget that this is the perfect time to become a member. Well, Actually, it's always the perfect time to become a member. This week, though, there's a nice and snappy little podcast extra about Anne's political knifing of Wolsey at Grafton. I went there yesterday, as it happens. The palace has gone, but the church is there with a really rather magnificent tomb of Elizabeth Woodville's grandfather, John Woodville. Huh, just thought I'd mention that. Anyway, everyone, see you next week, or indeed on the other side, hopefully, and thank you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.